reading verses 1 through 31. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Almost everyone who was alive in 1963 can remember when they got the news that President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, had been shot. And a few of you may remember that. A few more may remember 9-11 when you heard that the World Trade Center had been hit by terrorists. Momentous events have that effect on us allowing us to remember in sharp detail things that take place. And chapter 20 is such an event for the Apostle John. He had been a follower of Christ for three years. He loved Jesus. And we know that he had given up everything he had to follow him, to follow his teachings. He had left his family, his friends, his career behind him to follow Christ. But it was not until this day that he had the full realization of who Jesus actually was. The Messiah and the Son of God. John begins his account here with Mary visiting the tomb of Jesus early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Mary arrives at the tomb and she's deep in the agony of mourning after Jesus' death. But Mary's grief, we see, is only intensified to horror when she sees that the tomb stone had been rolled away and Jesus' body is no longer there. And in her excruciating shock, she immediately assumes that somebody must have come and stolen the body, taken it away, which prompts her to then run and tell the other disciples, particularly Peter and John, And that's why they, in turn, come running back to the tomb. And John notes that he arrived first at the tomb. And he describes himself, as he usually does, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The fact that he remembers who got there first is just part of the details that John recalls. Remember, this was the most momentous moment In his life. Everything changed after this day. And so he remembers it as if it were yesterday. And the most searing memory for John, though, is when he looked in and he saw the linen cloths. His eyes fell upon the cloths, which has brought brought everything together for him. Because John recognized that if the body had actually been stolen out of the tomb, these clothes should have gone with it. There would be no reason for a robber to strip the corpse and then take it off without any cloths on it. Moreover, the cloth that was used to wrap around Jesus' head ended up being folded up nice and neat. So... Even if one could imagine that robbers had stripped the body, they certainly wouldn't have bothered to then take the face cloth and fold it up nice and neatly and leave the other wrappings in an orderly fashion. And so when John sees these, he 
believes. He recognized what has happened. And John's belief here is different from what he understood about Jesus previously. Because before, he, what he understood about Jesus was just limited. He, he didn't fully understand Jesus' role completely. But seeing the linen cloths helps him put everything together. Because now he recognizes, as it says here, that the Messiah must die and then rise again. Previously, remember, John and the other disciples recognized Jesus was the Messiah. In the sense, they thought Jesus was going to come and overthrow the Romans and establish his kingdom. But when he ended up getting captured and then later killed, everything fell apart for them. All of their expectations were shattered. Which is why we see in the next scene, most of them huddled together in locked doors. Their lives had been devastated. They had invested everything in following this man. And he had died as a criminal. But when John sees these clothes, it all makes sense to him. He came to make an atonement for sins like the Passover lamb, not just to establish his kingdom. And Christians throughout history have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God for various reasons. Thomas, as we'll see later, came to believe Jesus was the Messiah by actually seeing him physically and maybe even touching him. The Apostle Paul, likewise, who had once persecuted the church, saw Jesus face to face, another post-resurrection appearance, when he was on his road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And the slave trader John Newton was saved when his ship was caught in a horrific storm and he thought the the ship was going to sink in the middle of the ocean and he cried out for God to save him and he repented after that day but what brought the atheist C.S. Lewis to believe in God was actually reading books books by G.K. Chesterton and uh, George MacDonald his friend J.R. Tolkien and these books, along with the personal friendships he had with Tolkien and another Oxford scholar, Hugo Dyson, are eventually what brought this rabid atheist to be convinced that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God. And Lewis eventually became one of the greatest apologists of Christianity, especially of the 20th century. So what about you? How did you come to faith in Christ? How did you come to believe that He really was the Son of God and the Messiah? Or if you have yet to believe, what would you say it is that currently holds you back? What is it that you have yet to see? What is it that you've yet to understand? What is it that's happened to you that may prevent you from believing? Well, unlike the other two disciples, Mary does not enter the tomb or return home. Rather, in her grief, she just stays there and continues to weep. She's still convinced that people have taken Jesus' body someplace, and she's desperate to find out. And that's why when she sees these two people in the tomb... In her grief, she doesn't recognize that they're angels. And when Jesus is behind her, she just assumes he's the gardener. 
But that's why she asked. She's so desperate to find out where Jesus is, his body that is, that she asks these people, where have you taken him? And John wants us to see how her weeping is actually connected to the loss of Jesus' body. And that's why when she discovers that the one she's actually talking to isn't the gardener, it's Christ himself, she clings to him. She doesn't want to let him go. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So recognize here, Jesus' words actually are a gentle rebuke to Mary. He says, do not cling to me, but go. Jesus tells her that the reason he is here at all is because he has not yet gone back to the Father, as he said he would in John sixteen seven. So even though Mary's response here is completely understandable when she recognized that Jesus isn't dead, he's alive again, Jesus rebukes her because in clinging to him, she's also clinging to her own misunderstanding. She's still thinking according to this old paradigm of who she understood Jesus to be. She doesn't understand that Jesus never intended, after rising from the dead, to physically remain on the earth. But his plan was always to go back to the Father. So his appearance to her is just to confirm that he really is alive from the dead. He appears to her so that she would then go, in seeing him, then go and tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus has conquered death. It is his final and greatest sign confirming who he is. But again, he doesn't intend to remain. Even we know that he won't ascend for another 40 days. But even in the course of these 40 days, Jesus only appears a few times to the disciples. It's not like he's just hanging out with them 40 days before he leaves. Just a few more appearances. We'll look at another one next week. He shows up and then he leaves again. And Jesus wants Mary to understand that not only is there no need to weep anymore that he has risen from the dead, but also that instead of clinging to him, she should be about his work, about spreading the gospel and the good news to others. And the news he has, her share is very specific. Notice. There's this emphasis on the account of his rising from the dead that a genuinely new relationship has been established. See what he says? Go and tell them that I am returning. Go and tell my brothers that I am returning to my God and your God. There's this whole new glorious relationship that's been established between believers and God. We read in Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body, the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we who are once enemies of him, hostile, it means we were trying in our minds, we were anti 
antagonistic against God. We were his enemies. He is reconciled to himself through his own death. And then also 1 John 3, 1, where John, same writer of this gospel, says, See what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should now be called the children of God. We who were once enemies, now as children. This whole new relationship has been established, and that's what Mary is supposed to communicate to the disciples. Not just that Jesus has risen from the dead, but also that there's this whole new relationship established. Things are going to be different from now on. And like Mary, as Christians grow in their understanding of who God is, they're often challenged to let go of faulty misunderstandings that they previously had. And this can be a very difficult thing. Especially if you've grown up in a certain church that's, that's taught a certain way or in a family that's taught a certain way and you grew up thinking that God was like this or Jesus was like this and then somebody comes and says, well, no, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. That can be actually very offensive, at least feel offensive. And to turn away from that old understanding may feel like you're being treasonous or unfaithful. When in actuality, what Jesus would call us to is to move deeper into our relationship with Him. As C.S. Lewis uses the term in the Chronicles of Narnia, to go further up and further in in our relationship with God. So when we're challenged by Scripture to let go of an old understanding because we see that the Bible teaches actually something different, it's not a cause for offense, it's a, it's a call of God to draw us deeper and deeper and closer into what He's actually called us to be as believers. Change can be extremely frightening, especially if it's on the scale of one's worldview, of how we make all our decisions and how we understand all of reality. But clinging to an improper understanding is only going to hold you back Holding to that old view is only going to hold you back from what God's calling you to. And in fact, it's only going to lead to disappointment and missed opportunity. In fact, it may be a failed opportunity. Just think, if Mary didn't have, Mary here didn't have a full understanding of God's plan, and so if she would have continued to cling to Jesus, cling to her own expectations that Christ wouldn't leave her again, She would only be disappointed. It would only be a tragedy. Even if we can sentimentally understand, we can sympathize with Mary's reaction, and we can. If she was, again, to cling to that, she would actually only be hurting herself. And what Jesus is saying is, Mary, stop clinging to me, but go. And likewise, what he's calling us to is stop clinging to your old understanding of what you think Christianity is supposed to be about, but hear my word and follow me. Verse 19, Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 19 indicates that this account, again, is taking place on Sunday evening. So it's the same day. And it's in a locked room where all the disciples had gathered together. But notice why. They're in a state of fear. They're terrified. Because the one whom they'd just given everything up for had just been crucified. And likewise, as his followers, they could just expect the same. And so that's why when Jesus enters the room, supernaturally, he tells them, the words that come out of his mouth are, peace be with you. He wants them to have peace. He wants them to let go of their fears. And so like Mary, a massive switch in their demeanor takes place after they see the Lord. But notice also, just like Mary... As Jesus wants to comfort them, he also gives them a commission when he appears to them. So he's not only come to bring them peace as he shows that he truly has risen from the dead, but he's very specific when he says he is there to send them out. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. That's why he's there. That's why he showed up. To send them. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus has come to them again to send them out as his representatives because he is going back to the Father. He has completed the work that the Father had given him to do. As he said on the cross, his last words, it is finished. So the work of salvation has been completed. What is yet to be complete is for the whole world to hear the good news that the work of salvation is completed. And he is personally not going to do that. Instead, he has gathered his disciples together to go out and spread that good news on his behalf. And that's also why he gives them the Holy Spirit. Having sanctified the disciples through his death, and now having risen from the dead, they can now receive the Holy Spirit. They can now Have God himself indwell them and empower them to complete the work that Jesus has accomplished by spreading the good news throughout the world. Now Luke's account of this meeting actually clarifies Jesus' purpose. If you flip to Luke chapter 24, verse 46, note what it says. Luke 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written... That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. So given Luke's account that they're to remain in the city until they're clothed with power on high, this seems to be just a symbolic dispensing of the Holy Spirit when he breathes on them. In a sense, it's like an earnest that will in full be completed later. And we know that as the event of Pentecost. So Jesus rising from the dead is his greatest sign. 
His last sign. The sign that truly proves he is all that he said he was. But it does more than affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. Although it does that primarily. His rising from the dead also means that the disciples' calling has now begun. What he had trained them up for is now being put into their hands. Their responsibility is now taking place. So he has spent the last three years training them to go and spread the gospel and to plant churches throughout the world. And now he's completed his work. Now their task of leadership has begun. They are given the responsibility to finish his work. And with this commission comes remarkable authority. Verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so the point here being is that these disciples are now his official representatives. Of him on the earth. And this statement that he makes about withholding forgiveness or dispensing it finds its closest parallel in Matthew 16:19 and also Matthew 18:18 18, 18. you might recall it when Jesus says to Peter and the disciples that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's again in reference to the authority that he's going to give them after he's gone. And so for clarity the even though they have been given this authority to withhold Forgiveness from any they choose. We know that the disciples wouldn't hold back forgiveness. So that might surprise you as you read that. But we know they wouldn't because of what Jesus said in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You might recall when Peter says to Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brothers? Seventy times seven? Or seven times? I can't remember how it goes exactly, right? But yeah, he says seventy times seven. And the point being... Peter, you've got to keep forgiving. Somebody who wants forgiveness, if you understand the forgiveness is being offered to you, there is no way you would hold it, withhold it from anyone. Moreover, the authority they have regarding forgiveness is particularly one of proclaiming that forgiveness throughout the world. They have the power in proclaiming the gospel for anyone who wants forgiveness of their sins to be forgiven if they would just repent and believe. That's the, that's the authority. That's amazing. You remember back in Mark chapter 2 maybe when Jesus upsets the Pharisees by simply saying to a, to a uh, paralytic, go, your sins are forgiven. They wanted, they wanted to attack Jesus right then because of the authority that comes with that statement. Well, Jesus is giving that same authority to the apostles here. It's remarkable. And he's given that authority because he is ascending to his father. And as with the, all the other signs that we've seen in the Gospel of John, every sign comes with this call to belief and action. And so you should recognize now that if a person were to ask you, what does Resurrection Sunday mean to you? In addition to saying that it's the evidence that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God and that His sacrifice was real and was powerful enough to 
forgive us of our penalty of sin. You should also say that the resurrection reminds me that as a follower of Christ, I have a responsibility to go and see that the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole world. That is the task that he has given to his church to complete. That's why we're here. But verse 24 tells us that one person who was absent at this meeting was Thomas. And when he hears from the rest of the disciples that they had all literally seen Jesus, he adamantly refuses to believe. And he he couldn't really say it in any starker terms. Unless I put my hand in the wounds, or his finger in, in the wounds or in his side, I will not believe. Despite what all these men, these friends that he had lived with are saying in earnest. He says, I will not believe. But a week later, Jesus does appear to Thomas. And again, the doors are locked. And then again, he comes in announcing peace. Jesus calls Thomas in particular to peace and he lovingly accommodates Thomas's demands by giving him what he wanted. He shows him his hands. In fact, he tells them, tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. See, even though Jesus accommodates his demands, Jesus makes it clear that Thomas's demands are not honorable. Jesus loves him. He cares for him by proving himself to Thomas. But note the rebuke he gives him. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And this tells us that faith is largely a matter of the will. Faith is largely a matter of our own choosing. Why else would he say, do not disbelieve? See, people like to think that they don't need to believe the word of God until God convinces them that what he says is true. As if the Bible, the Bible were guilty until proven, of, proven innocent of error to our satisfaction. We like to imagine that we're just passive agents just waiting to be convinced that when there's enough evidence for us to believe, then we will. But the truth is that belief and unbelief are volitional. We choose to do both. And so one should be honest with themselves why they choose to believe or why they choose not to believe. Is it really due to a lack of evidence? Or is it due to some other reason? Again, we should be honest with ourselves. Is it due to maybe fear? Loss? Maybe anger? Pride? The question is for all of us. This question is for all of us in this room. Like Thomas, 
What things, even as a Christian, what things do you struggle to believe? What would you require of Jesus for him to prove his trustworthiness? And think about that stuff that, that you struggle to believe. And like Thomas, what, would, what do you think you would need for him to prove his trustworthiness to you? And note that the only way Thomas was able to believe we imagine, is if Jesus offered that. But Jesus again says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And his command to you is the same. But also know this, what he says next. Blessed are those, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Consider also, the only way that Thomas could have received that peace that he was looking for, I mean, he was scared like the rest of the disciples. The only way he can receive that peace that Jesus offers is in making the choice to stop disbelieving. He's got to recognize that, yeah, he's choosing not to believe. And John transitions here to clarifying the point in why he wrote this account of Jesus' life. And it flows easily from what Jesus just told Thomas. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So remember, all the signs that Jesus performed, and especially His rising from the dead, confirmed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and the Son of God. And John wrote this whole account, the Gospel of John, for the primary purpose that we would recognize, that we would believe that He is the Messiah and the Son of God. And that we would recognize that, not just so that we would believe it and feel better about ourselves, but that we would recognize this so we might have life. That's why John's writing it. He wants you to have life, eternal life. And to have that, you must believe. But recall all the different miracles that Jesus performed so far. And John's written about him turning water into wine back in John chapter 2. He's healed paralytics and people with blindness who had, who had been in that condition for their whole life. He's cast out demons, multiplied bread and fish, even raised Lazarus from the dead, and then, of course, now his own rising from the dead. And each of these accounts not only demonstrates Jesus' divine power, they also affirm that he was the Savior that God had prophesied way back when Adam sinned. All of those signs not just, don't just prove that Jesus is the Son of God, they prove that he is the one God has sent to pay for our sins. He didn't just do miraculous things. He fulfilled scripture perfectly. The signs prove that he is both the Messiah and the Son of God. Which means 
that there is no credible reason before God for a person not to believe. Because God couldn't have made it more clear. The evidence is thick. But it also means, it also means that Jesus is a person's only hope. Because God is not sending another means of salvation. He sent His Son because it would take His Son to bear the penalty of the sins of the world. There is no other way to be saved from God's wrath. As it says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else and in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's salvation in no one else. And the Bible has made it clear, the signs Jesus performed, particularly His rising from the dead, have made it clear He is the prophesied One. That's it. He's it. And so if you reject Him, you reject the only opportunity you have of being relieved of the consequences of sin. Which means all of us here must choose. Will you secure your eternal future by believing He he is who He says He is? And show that by following Him. Or will you accept the consequences of sin? That's, that's the option. If you reject Christ, you're accepting the consequences of sin. Which are sin's ongoing destruction in your life. Eventually, it's, it means physical death. And later, eternal punishment. And even if you think what... Almost all of what the Bible teaches is just a bunch of hogwash. Even if you're thinking, I don't really believe much of the Bible at all. You can't reject the reality of the consequences of sin. That's natural. That's obvious. Because each of us know of the consequences of sin in regard to our relationships. We know how sin has destroyed relationships in our life. We also know that one day we're going to die. Moreover, we can just look around you. Look at the news. The news is replete with acts of sin, of violence, of greed, of selfishness, ripping our world apart. These are the consequences of sin. And so if you reject Christ, what you're saying is, I'll take the consequences. I'll take the destruction. I'll accept death and hell. Because if you reject Christ, there is no other way to avoid those consequences. Jesus gives believers the only way of avoiding these consequences. He gives believers the power to resist sin and put it to death. He also will give us resurrected bodies after we die, like His. And I actually want to close in reading a verse of Scripture, some verses of Scripture that actually just tie those two 
truths together. This is in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. That Jesus gives us the power to resist sin if we trust in Him. And likewise, He will also give us a resurrected body like His. Romans 6, 5, it says, For we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Believers don't have to sin anymore, is his point. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. As it says in verse 5, in a resurrection, resurrected body like his. Jesus died and was resurrected so that we might not have to taste the permanent consequences of sin. And the only way to avoid those consequences is by believing in Him, trusting in Him, and following Him. So I close with these words of Jesus for you. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Let's pray. Jesus, there's not a single person in this room that does not struggle to believe. And we struggle to believe for various reasons, all of which you know. And I pray that even as you've made it clear that it's not your desire for anybody to be caught up in the hopelessness of unbelief or disbelief or doubt, that You would be gracious to us and again, confirm Your truth to us that we might not disbelieve, but believe. Lord, as as that man said to You in desperation, I believe, help my unbelief. I ask on behalf of everyone here, Lord, that You, we want to believe in You. Help our unbelief that we might not taste the ongoing consequences of sin. And that we might one day, even after we die, we know it's coming, Lord. But that even as we come to die, we would not come to it in terror, but we come to it in confidence. And likewise, Lord, that we would not live for ourselves any longer, but for you who died and rose again on our behalf then we might live according to the design for which you've designed us. To be your servants and to live for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.